Hey everybody! You are listening to the Creative BioLabs podcast, the show that introduces the basics about stem cells and their broad applications. Please contact us if you have any questions or suggestions. And don't forget to subscribe to follow the latest updates. Dear friends in the audience, you are welcome to listen to our program on time every Saturday night. The sharing guest we invited today is still the lovely Dr. Benjamin Smith, a famous editor of scientific journals. Let's welcome him with your warm applause. Why don't you say hello to our audience at the very beginning, Dr. Smith? Good evening, all dear followers of this podcast. Good evening, Connie. It is quite nice to see you again. Thank you for your kind invitation. I am truly looking forward to being here every week. In the last issue, we mentioned that already differentiated cells or tissue-specific stem cells were shown to alter their phenotype to express the functional characteristics of different tissues. There are many examples of transdifferentiation, and we focused on the example of interconversion of the pancreas and the liver. In addition, we briefly mentioned that understanding the molecular signals in the development of Barrett's metaplasia will help to identify the key steps in neoplasia and may provide potential therapeutic targets and diagnostic tools. Could you please introduce more about Barrett's metaplasia? Sure. Barrett's metaplasia, sometimes referred to as Barrett's esophagus, is a clinical condition in which intestinal cells are found in the tissue of the lower end of the esophagus. Strictly speaking, it is the conversion of the stratified squamous epithelium to columnar epithelium. And, the presence of goblet cells containing acid mucin in the biopsy material is characteristic of Barrett's metaplasia. Overall, the apparent increased incidence of the disease and its risk associated with the development of adenocarcinoma of the esophagus makes Barrett's metaplasia important. Is there any information about the mechanism for the development of Barrett's metaplasia? Yes. Gastroesophageal reflux is one of the mechanisms of the development of Barrett's metaplasia. Prolonged acid reflux from the stomach is a major cause of promoting damage to the epithelial cells at the end of the esophagus. It is presumed that the normal stratified squamous epithelium is replaced in the early stages of the disease. Reepithelialization eventually causes the formation of columnar rather than stratified squamous epithelium, which is likely due to repeated exposure to an acid environment. However, to date, it is uncertain whether the different intestinal cell types that form in the esophagus originate from the same stem cells in the basal layer and whether there is transdifferentiation of columnar cells to goblet cells. The reason why some patients with efflux disease do not go on to develop Barrett's metaplasia is also unclear. At the molecular level, how does Barrett's metaplasia occur? In this regard, there are several good candidate genes, including the caudal-related homeobox genes CDX1 and CDX2. Several lines of evidence support this claim. For example, both genes are expressed in the intestine, rather than in the stomach or esophagus, and are known to play an important role in regulating intestine-specific gene expression. And, in CDX2 haploinsufficient mice, the colonic epithelium is transformed to squamous epithelium, which is similar to the esophagus.
What's more, ectopic expression of CDX2 in the stomach was recently found to induce intestinal metaplasia, and there is some evidence for early expression of CDX2 in Barrett's metaplasia. In conclusion, the CDX genes could provide a target for therapeutic intervention in Barrett's metaplasia. What is the connection between transdifferentiation and regenerative medicine? The core idea of regenerative medicine or tissue engineering is to use tissue-specific stem cells to replace damaged or lost organs. However, the use of differentiated cells may be more feasible than the use of stem cells, as more events about differentiated cell plasticity are discovered. The classic example of transdifferentiation is the conversion of the dorsal iris pigmented epithelium to the lens in newts, which occurs during lens regeneration. In other species, the transdifferentiation to the lens may occur in cells of different origins, as in the outer cornea in Xenopus lavis. Similarly, in various vertebrates, Regeneration of the neural retina occurs via the retinal pigmented epithelium transdifferentiation. In both cases, the regeneration occurs in adult newts as well as in embryos of other vertebrates, including chicks, fish, and rats. What are the key factors in the transdifferentiation to the lens? Upon removal of the lens, only the dorsal iris pigmented epithelium transdifferentiates into the lens undergoing three stages of dedifferentiation, proliferation, and transdifferentiation. It was shown that the dorsal iris pigmented epithelium expresses genes including PAX6, PROX1, and fibroblast growth factor receptor 1, which may play an important role in inducing the transdifferentiation. In Xenopus, Fibroblast growth factor receptor 1 has been shown to induce transdifferentiation of the outer cornea to the lens. And, inhibition of fibroblast growth factor receptor 1 prevents iris-pigmented epithelium transdifferentiation to the lens. Consistent with this, the addition of either fibroblast growth factor 1 or fibroblast growth factor 2 promoted retinal regeneration in chick embryos, whereas the addition of other growth factors such as transforming growth factor beta did not. These results suggest that the microenvironment in which a cell resides is crucial in regulating transdifferentiation. According to you, one cell changes its phenotype, while another does not respond to exogenous growth factors. Why would this be the case? Probably, this depends on the capacity of each cell, for example, the presence of appropriate receptors. It may be that fibroblast growth factors induce tissue dedifferentiation and that the expression of specific transcription factors induces both proliferation and transdifferentiation. The molecular signals involved in transdifferentiation are identifiable and can be used to promote the regeneration of cells that are usually considered unable to change their phenotype. Well, this can be illustrated by this classic model of regeneration of the lens. So, does transdifferentiation occur on the premise that the parent cell must lose its phenotype before acquiring a new identity? Not really. For example, there is an intermediate phenotype in the transdifferentiation process of the iris-pigmented epithelium to the lens. In this phenotype, the cells do not express any of the cell type markers. However, 
Examples of direct transdifferentiation do exist. The transdifferentiation of the pancreas to the liver may be the best example. Whether a cell is directly transdifferentiated through a dedifferentiated state or a stem cell may vary by the cell types that are being studied. That is, the parent cells either contain the information needed to directly change their phenotype or require the synthesis of new proteins. Can I understand it this way? Very good point. In direct transdifferentiation, the ability of the cell is already established. That means, the removal of an inhibitor or the addition of an activator can push the fate of the cells past the final hurdle. In contrast, for dedifferentiated and stem cell intermediates, establishing the competency of the parent cell before undergoing transdifferentiation may be necessary. Further studies on the transdifferentiation potential of individual transcription factors and different cell types will be helpful for understanding the rules of transdifferentiation. I see. Is there a protocol for altering a cell's phenotype experimentally? Sure, there is. Attempting to experimentally alter the phenotype of a cell requires six steps. First, Potential factors that induce transdifferentiation should be identified. Transdifferentiation could be achieved in some ways through the use of extracellular growth factors, individual transcription factors, or a combination of both. Understanding how individual organs or cell types form is an enabler for identifying those molecular factors that can be used to guide the transdifferentiation of other cell types. These factors that are critical for initial organ development are thought to play the best role as they are located at the top of the hierarchy of the signaling cascade. Some functional screens may help to identify new factors with the potential to direct transdifferentiation. For example, those screens that were previously used to identify new mesoderm-inducing factors. And what is the second step? Choosing a cell type to convert is the second step. In many cases, specific transdifferentiation can be experienced only by certain cells. It indicates that there are limitations on the ability of a cell to undergo transdifferentiation. Therefore, it is important to choose the cell type initially. It is not difficult to imagine that using closely related cell types would greatly improve the chances for transdifferentiation. For example, using pancreatic AR42J cells to convert the pancreas into the liver. In conclusion, for them to be therapeutically useful, primary cultures of well-defined cell types or in vivo experiments must be performed. Thanks for the clarification. How about the next step? It is key to choose the method of overexpression, that is, the third step. The requirement for continuous or limited overexpression of a particular factor has to be determined. On the one hand, the tissue-specific promoter allows the expression of the factor only for a relatively short period of time. Upon transdifferentiation, the promoter is no longer active. On the other hand, the ubiquitous promoter will continuously express the chosen factor and may produce undesired results. Many transcriptional regulators are only transiently expressed. And, 
strict temporal regulation must be required for normal development. For example, the normal pancreas continuously overexpresses the gene HLXB9, which interferes with the differentiation of exocrine and endocrine cells. Therefore, the use of constitutive promoters may not be proper. The use of tissue-specific promoters should be the most appropriate choice to prevent the chosen factors from interfering with the correct differentiation of the new phenotype. What is the fourth step? The fourth step is to identify whether a modification of the factor is required. Even after identifying the factor, transdifferentiation may not occur. There could be a few reasons for this, but a superactive version of the same factor needs to be tested before dismissing it. The most straightforward way to do this is to use a strong activation domain that has been characterized, like viral tegument protein 16. More emphasis should be placed on fusing viral tegument protein 16 to the entire ORF of the transcription factor, not just the DNA binding domain, than on whether it is fused to the end or C terminus. The next step is about characterizing the new phenotype, I guess. What should we know if so? In the beginning, the use of reporter constructs will be of great help in identifying successful conversions. For example, the use of the elastase promoter drives green fluorescent proteins in a liver to pancreas conversion. It is preferable initially to use promoters that are expressed in all cell types in a specific organ, instead of those specific to an individual cell type in that organ. We can then get some very critical information. First of all, transdifferentiation is not limited to the generation of one type of cell. For example, in the case of the transdifferentiation of the liver to the pancreas, ectopic expression of pancreatic and duodenal homeobox 1 viral tegument protein 16 gave rise to more than one type of pancreatic cell. In addition, for a cell type conversion to be true transdifferentiation, the phenotype of the new cells must be stable. You are right. Finally, we are moving on to the last step. What is it? It is to test the transdifferentiation activity in other cell types, obviously. As we learned, only a subset of cells can undergo specific transdifferentiation in many cases. Thus, the types of cells that can transdifferentiate and the reasons why a cell is able to respond need to be determined. An understanding of the capacity of individual cells will facilitate a better understanding of the factors necessary for transdifferentiation to occur. In conclusion, a protocol to experimentally alter a cell phenotype is a beneficial tool. This is because the ability to change the cell phenotype will greatly facilitate the design of therapies for diseases such as diabetes, liver failure, and neurodegenerative diseases. Wow, I feel suddenly enlightened. So much for our content today. I have learned a lot. Let's thank Dr. Smith for his wonderful scientific sharing. Thank you for listening. There will be more interesting topics waiting for us in the next program. See you next time. Thank you. I hope we will see you next time.